I keep forgetting that I don't have to worry about the kids because they're already gone. <laughs> you, on the other hand, will want to turn, wait for it, the second chapter of Genesis. We spent a long time in the first one. <laughs> I don't think we'll spend as long in the second, but there is much to say here as well. Genesis chapter 2. And if you would join me in prayer. Lord, our guest this morning in the Sunday school hour pointed to the rising tide of atheism in our world today. The worldview that says that you are not real, you are not there, you had nothing to do with anything related to this world. Your word, especially in the portion we have been in and continue in today, speaks just the opposite. It is all about you and what you have done and your purposes and what these things mean for us in our lives even now today. So we ask that you would once again open your truth to us. Show us the things that we need to understand. Let us see application for our lives, but also for our awareness of your hand in all of this, that we may not only praise you, but be your faithful witnesses in a lost and dying world. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I will start this morning with reference to that atheism that I mentioned. If life evolved by chance here on earth, it would be reasonable to assume that it has evolved elsewhere in the universe. Not that we have found it elsewhere in the universe, but with such a vast universe, it would not be unreasonable to think that it also evolved by chance somewhere else. If that is the case, then our understanding of everything, literally everything, goes one way. But is that so? Or is this earth a special, it certainly is that, by our belief, but is it also a unique creation of God? That's maybe not as abundantly clear. It isn't impossible that God would have done something elsewhere. Although the scriptural sense that we have is this is a special and unique place. And what God did here, he has not done elsewhere. This is the place where he has done it. Peter Ward and David Brownless, in their book, Rare Earth, argue that the Earth's position in the Milky Way, the juxtaposition and size of the planets in our solar system, especially Jupiter, the function of this Earth's moon, 
and numerous other factors in their book make it likely, they argue, that Earth is the only place in the universe where there is life. Earth is special according to Genesis 1. And in the original creation week, now as we enter Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day is special, not quite like the others that we have seen in the first six wherein God created everything. So we pick up the text at Genesis 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. The account of that, Genesis 1. And all their hosts, all that was with them and in them and about them. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. With the completion of the account of creation in Genesis 1, the focus now at the beginning of Genesis 2 is on this seventh day the day that God rested. More details about creation, what God did in the first six, especially the sixth day, especially concerning the creation in Adam Adam and Eve, will come, as you know, in Genesis 2, just shortly ahead. But first, we find this very important focus on the seventh day, which is unique and exalted, an exalted day, because God blessed it and sanctified it. The Hebrew word sanctified has a root meaning of holy, something that is set apart. God's ceasing of his creation work is what makes the seventh day holy, and he declared it and consecrated it as such. The seventh day is unique for three reasons that jump out of the text to us. God had completed, first reason, his work of creation. Second, he rested on the seventh day. Third, he blessed the seventh day. But first he completed or finished or ended his creation work. No more loose ends to be tied up, no problems to fix, no modifications to the original plan required. As so many people in our world, in our familiarity, develop, say, a new product, as time passes, they find they must make adjustments, they must make changes. Things don't work the way uh, that, that it was intended. God had nothing like that. Everything completed. He did not need to do any more creation work. That was all done in the six days as already revealed. It's best, I think, to translate Genesis 2 and verse 2, look there, as the New American Standard does, by the seventh day rather than on the seventh day, God did not do more creating on the seventh day and then stop and rest for part of it. No, he rested the entire seventh day and the work of creating had been completed on the six days, thus resting on the seventh. Ancient Hebrew 
does not use what we call today the pluperfect tense. The pluperfect tense is for past actions that come prior to, before other past actions. All in the past, but then there are things that happened in the past before other things. And so you have language rather than just God completed this already. No, he had completed this is the sense here. That already occurred in the past before other things in the past, and that is what is meant. The context determines whether it's a simple past or a what we call a pluperfect past. Um, and here in Genesis 2, verse 1, then 2 especially, that's what I think the sense is. It's just that Hebrew doesn't have that tense. Thus, Genesis 2, 2, by or on, if we want to say that, God had completed. If we say on, well, he had completed already uh, all of his creating. This is a perfectly legitimate and appropriate translation. God didn't finish the last of his creation work again on the seventh day, and then he rested. All of his creation work had been completed in the six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Contrary to this, there are always these tie-ins, often not paid attention to. Evolution suggests that creation is a work not done by God, especially atheistic evolution, but it's a work that is still in process. It has not ended. It goes on and on and on. What God's Word tells us is the utter perfection and completion that of everything that God created in the brief time in which he accomplished it all. In the beginning. Now we, we relate modern science to this. The scientific law of thermodynamics, the first law of thermodynamics, offers evidence that Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2 are true ruling out the possibility of ongoing creation or what evolution would see as a work, as it were, still in process. And the second law of thermodynamics eliminates the possibility that an ordered universe evolved from chaos. The first law deals with the conservation of matter energy. It's neither being created or destroyed. Systems that use energy do not use it up. I'm trying to be as simple as possible. They merely convert energy from one form to another. Heat, motion, sound, light, chemical, electromagnetic energy. Einstein's theory, E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, teaches us that matter is simply another form of energy. Matter or energy is neither being created or destroyed in the universe now or since God completed his creation week. Thus, the first law of thermodynamics is consistent with what God tells us in Genesis 2, verse 1. The amount of energy 
or matter remains constant and we find no evidence that there is any ongoing creation production of it but might matter and energy itself be eternal many atheists will say oh yes might it need no God to create it originally because it's always been there it is or rather I should ask it this way is it possible according to this notion that the universe is sort of a gigantic perpetual motion machine ever evolving no not if you believe the Bible not if you believe God and his word But even in science, I believe, that possibility is eliminated by the second law of thermodynamics, which indicates that the total amount of useful energy is decreasing. Doesn't mean that the energy has gone away or been been taken out of existence, but the total amount of useful energy is decreasing. Randomness and disorder are increasing. In simple terms, the second law of thermodynamics indicates that the universe is running down. It is wearing out. Systems left to run on their own always move from order toward chaos, not the other way around. Contrary, mind you, to the theory of evolution which posits a process of ever-increasing order and complexity. In non-technical terms, the second law of thermodynamics is a measure of the increasing amount of non-useful energy. Again, while matter and energy are not destroyed, When it is converted from one form to another, it becomes less useful in the process. For example, heat generated and dissipated when a car engine runs, the heat that is generated performs no work, and the measure of that non-productive energy is the measure of the system's what's called entropy or the measure of randomness or disorder in the system. Heat transfers from warmer bodies to cooler bodies, always heading toward what's labeled equilibrium, at which point the system becomes inert, non-active, meaning there is no more heat power available for action, for motion, for resistance. All working systems result in a decreasing availability of useful energy. Everything will run down, wear out, or become disorderly, and this principle rules out any sort of perpetual motion machine-like thing, even on a cosmic scale. Thus, matter and energy cannot be eternal. All things in the material universe decay. Hebrews 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. Matthew 6, verse 19. Everything dissipates and disintegrates. Therefore, if the universe were infinitely old, because matter energy has always existed, it would have wound down already. 
This means there was a beginning, a beginning set in motion by a supernatural cause, just as Scripture teaches us. God created it all in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested from his creating work. There is no ongoing creation of matter or energy. God designed the universe such that what he created would be complete and it would remain functioning only as long as it serves his purposes. The universe is not eternal or self-sufficient. It is the product of God's creative genius. On each day, the spirit moves in strange ways. What? It's disorder, yes. It's collapsing right here in front of you. On each day of the creation week, don't worry, I will get to the seventh, God worked a plethora of wonders. And each day's work perfectly complemented the other day's works. This is the whole thrust of the biblical creation account. God created the entire universe with all of its untold marvels, some few of which we reflected on in past messages. And he did this all in utter perfection, did he, did he make it all, out of nothing in six days. The time frame, six days, is not figurative, nor is it incidental to the point that Scripture is making. The amazing excellence of God's created work is forfeited to a very large degree if we abandon the creation in favor, the days of creation, in favor of ages-long evolutionary process, which is the modern popular thinking. And more, the emphasis that is given to the seventh day throughout Scripture is significant in establishing the time frame of that creation in six days. The first week determined the periods of labor and rest that God would require of his covenant people. The truth of a literal day creation was written, for instance, into the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 9, 10, and 11. It was reiterated in Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17, and it comes again in Deuteronomy. Man is to work six days and rest on the seventh because, we are specifically told, God created on six days and rested on the seventh day. The whole point of God's instruction for man's work week is nullified if the days can be turned into time periods of indefinite, lengthy duration. God's resting, of course, did not mean, as it does for you and I, being fallen creatures as we are, it did not mean that God was exhausted after the six days and he needed somehow to recoup his strength after all the labor of the six days, which of course he could have accomplished if he wished to in seconds. Isaiah 40 and verse 28, God, he, he tells us, does not become weary or tired. 
when God works, there is no dissipation of his energy. No, if you will, second law in effect. He is never fatigued. Fatigue. He never needs rejuvenation. His resting was simply, as he states it, an ending of his creating work. In Exodus 31, verse 17, we are told that on the seventh day, God ceased from labor, labor and was refreshed. This does not mean, should not be read to mean, that he was therein rejuvenated as though he, he was now lacking in energy and he needed to have it restored. He is regaining somehow lost energy. No, refreshed in this case means he ceased from his creating to now delight in and enjoy what he had done. A bit like a master artisan who completes a masterpiece and then admires and reflects on his finished work. Ceasing his creating activity does not mean that God ceased, for instance, his providential working or that he ceased working altogether. He continued to sustain and govern his creation just as he still does, providentially ruling over it today as he always has. Jesus told us, well, in the scriptures, but Jesus said this to the Jewish leaders, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, John 5, 17. So resting on the seventh day doesn't mean that all of God's work ceases, his creating work ceases. He didn't withdraw from the universe and leave the universe to run on its own as the religion of deism suggests. God ceasing his creating work is seen in the current functioning of the universe. As Henry Morris, the father of modern creationism, said, and I quote, the present processes of the universe are without exception processes of conservation and disintegration as formulated in the two universal laws of thermodynamics. The processes of the creation period, on the other hand, were processes of innovation and integration or creating and making, which are exactly the opposite. This is why science can never speak with any real authority when it comes to the question of the origin of the universe. Henry Morris continues... Quote, science can only deal with present processes to which it alone has access. It should be completely clear to all who are not willfully ignorant that universal processes of conservation and disintegration could never produce a universe requiring almost infinite processes of innovation and integration for its production. Therefore, if we really want to know anything about the creation period, other than the fact that there must have been such a creation period to produce this universe, a fact certainly required by the two laws of thermodynamics, then, Morris says, such knowledge can only be acquired by divine revelation. And God has given us that divine revelation in the Bible. 
And from it we learn that God created everything in six literal days, and then he rested from creating on the seventh literal day. God's creation week established a pattern for the rhythm of all of human life. He required it of his covenant people, but all peoples around the world have found that this rhythmic pattern, six and one days, makes sense and is the best way to proceed. He, de- he designed us such that we humans thrive best under a pattern of work and rest that closely parallels God's activities during creation week. One day of rest in seven is the ideal ratio. People quickly show signs of fatigue when they miss that one day of rest per week. And productivity suffers when the work week is shortened. If there is no God, and Genesis 1 and 2 are therefore but fantasy or legend or myth, where did we get the work week from? A seven-day work week is not divisible in equal amounts into a solar year or into a lunar month. And yet experience shows us that the seventh-day week is the best way of organizing our lives. The French revolutionaries and the communists in Russia, as well as the government of Sri Lanka or Ceylon in the 1960s, all tried to abolish the seven-day work week. But in each case they found it a dismal failure and all brought back the seven-day work week, which is based on nothing but what God reveals in his word. There is, there was no secular, rational reason or cosmic reason or philosophical reason or mathematical reason or scientific reason for seven-day weeks. There is only one reason. God himself established an order of seven in the pattern of his creation. Every week of our lives, therefore, we go through a cycle intended by God to remind us that he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And the seventh day is a reminder that God is our creator and a memorial to his completed creation. Now, we do notice that it is not said here in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, of the seventh day, as it was said of the other six. And there was evening, and there was morning, the whatever day. However, this fact does not mean, as some have suggested it, that the seventh day never ended And the seventh day is a vast era covering now all of human history. And thus, perhaps, if that is the case, the seventh day is enormously long, perhaps the first six days might also have been long eras or ages and not literal days as well. This is argued, seemingly nonsensically. If the seventh day, if the seventh day, were deemed to be a long age because the seventh day lacks the reference and there was evening and there was morning, 
then surely the other six are literal days because they have that reference, which, by the way, is a very clear marker of a literal day with evening and morning. None of these things help the evolutionary process. Those who want to argue that the seventh day has gone on and on and maybe the six days were terribly, terribly long do so to accommodate to one amount or other of evolutionary thinking. But none of this helps that hypothesis. In reality, the eighth day followed the seventh, the ninth day followed the eighth, and so on. The omission of evening and morning mentioned for the seventh day, the omission of it suggests, however, that the rest that God entered into, again, not a rest from all of his working activity, but that the rest that God entered into was, for what it was, a permanent rest from his creating work, which has ramifications, according to Hebrews in the New Testament, related to our salvation or our rest in him. God ceasing creating and was completely satisfied with it and what he had created. As Augustine observed so long ago, our hearts are restless until we find rest in our God. If God's salvation rest is what goes on, then the scripture in the Old Testament at the creation in Genesis 2, as well as what's later said in Hebrews, makes sense. That rest, as Hebrews 4 points out, is only entered by faith. Intellectual belief in God will not bring rest to the soul. You can have a certain intellectual belief in God, but there is no salvation rest. Acknowledging even that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or even that he is God himself and the Savior of the world will not bring this rest. It didn't bring it, doesn't bring it to Satan. Rest comes when we actually trust in him. True faith is belief plus trust. When you truly trust in Christ as Savior, rest comes because the burden of your sin is lifted. You rest from your works of attempting to save yourself, which is so common to mankind. And in Christ, you enter God's rest. No matter how harried or unsettled, or troubled by trials a Christian's life may be, true believers can experience rest in God, which is a perpetual trusting in God, no matter our circumstances. Hebrews 4 never says that the seventh day of creation continues to the present and beyond. It merely says that God's gift of rest to his people continues. If one were to say he rested on Saturday and was still resting on Monday, one would not mean that Saturday lasted until Monday. Next. We don't know how long 
the perfectly good state of paradise indicated in Genesis 1 and verse 31 lasted because we don't know how long after the seventh day man sinned. Scripture seems to suggest that the fall came almost immediately after the first week. It certainly came before Adam and Eve conceived any children which God had commanded them to do. God did not go on creating, but aspects of his rest ceased once man sinned and he undertook the work of redemption. God had blessed the man and the woman, but he had not blessed the first six days. The seventh day, however, is blessed. God blessed it. God made it spiritually fruitful. In blessing it, God made the seventh day a blessing. Between our regrets of yesterday and our worries about tomorrow, we don't enjoy, in many cases, the blessing of today and especially the blessing of the Sabbath day. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it or made it holy. He hallowed the seventh day, setting it apart and aside as a memorial, a permanent reminder of the glory of creation and the surpassing glory of the Creator. To reject the six-day creation is to unbless the seventh It robs God of the glory that is due his name. If everything evolved from nothing, or if creation was spread out over eons of time and the process continues, there would be no seventh day as God clearly made it to be. It can only be in the completion of God's creation work. Any view of Genesis 1 and 2, therefore, other than the literal six-day creation, totally confounds the blessing of the seventh day. But if we believe what God has told us, then every seventh day is a memorial and a reminder that God created the entire universe in one week, and for that glorious accomplishment, he deserves our praise. With a completed creation in which everything was perfectly good, we also see something else of great significance. God is not the author of evil. When he ceased creating, everything was good. Evil was found nowhere. Philosophers struggle with the origin of evil. One thing is certain, God is not its author, its creator, or its efficient cause. Everything he created was very good. Evil has no part in his creation. Well then, who then created evil? No one. No one. Evil is neither a substance a being, a spirit, or matter. It is not a created thing. 
If you want to understand evil, it is a lack of moral perfection in moral agents who were originally created by God sinless. Evil has no existence apart from fallen creatures. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He is not the author or instigator of evil. He did not concoct sin, encourage sin, sanction sin, condone sin, approve it, or otherwise countenance it. He did create moral agents with a capacity to make moral choices, and they fell by their own evil intention. Having the ability to make real choices with moral consequences is foundational to love relationships, and love was fundamental to the sort of relationship that God created us to have with him. And he has it, as he has it, I should say, within his own triune Godhead. While sin was no part of God's perfect creation, neither was it something that snuck up on God or caught God by surprise. Sin was not something that thwarted God's plan. Rather, knowing that it would occur, God planned on it and uses it in his plan for a fallen world. God made human beings in his image to be moral agents, giving them the freedom to act. And they fell in sin of their own choice. The same being true, of course, for fallen angels. God is sovereign over all. And evil is in no sense a breach of his authority or his absolute sovereignty. God did not, however, take the same active role in the devising of sin that he did in the creation of good. Fallen creatures, angels and human beings, bear full responsibility for our sin. God's creation at its completion was impeccably flawless. Evil spoiled that perfect goodness after God had finished creating. God's sovereign purpose from the beginning was to overrule his creatures' evil deeds and destroy evil forever, restoring the creation to a glory that surpasses even the glory and perfection of Eden. The glory of God's original creative work is diminished by any theory that stretches creation out over long ages of time because the evolutionary process would necessarily involve death before man's fall and thus something not in every way very good. Evolution would also imply that God spent ages, if he did it, that God spent ages tinkering with his creation until he got it right. Evolution at any stage in the creation week overturns the assertion that everything God created was very good, Genesis 1.31. Instead, evolution suggests that God created things in an unfinished state and then brought them to completion, or is still doing so, through natural processes, and that is bluntly not what Scripture teaches as highlighted in today's text. The whole of creation week underscores the direct 
the truth rather, of an immediate, direct creation, fully accomplished, fully completed, to perfection in one week. Any other interpretation simply does not do justice to the plain language of the Word of God. This is why the great majority of those who hold a different view of origins from the biblical one know that there is no way to harmonize their view with what the Bible says. And they conclude that the biblical account is simply a myth or a fantasy. The ones who try to harmonize what God says in the creation account with an evolutionary view or some element of it are those who are believers who think that they must hold to these evolutionary views because science has proved this. That's not true. Genesis' account is no more myth or fantasy than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is no more myth and fantasy than the transformation that millions have experienced personally through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. The Genesis account is no more myth and fantasy than the many astonishing, fulfilled prophecies found in Scripture which offer great proof of the truth of the biblical record throughout. The whole of Scripture stands or falls together. It simply cannot be believed in pieces or in parts alone. If rational honesty is to be maintained. That said, as we move now into Genesis 2, there are those who say that what we find in Genesis 2 contradicts Genesis 1. Or some of what it says requires a different understanding of the days in Genesis 1. We will consider that as we move on in the text. Does the second chapter sink the first? Or is there a marvelous harmony present which only confirms that we are dealing with the word of God Almighty who does not err in any way? Come next time for reflections on into that. Let's pray. Lord, the matters that you have presented to us as I have tried to explain them, albeit briefly, may seem tedious. But these things are foundationally important to our understanding of life and how it is to be lived, and what its goals are, and what its origin was, and how that meant and does mean much in our relationship to you. May we acknowledge these things and praise you for what you have done and serve you in every way that we can in obedience to your word, reaching out to those who don't know you with the gospel message that they so desperately need to receive. And may we honor you in all things as you have created all things to the glory and honor of your name, we pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. May you be blessed in this hearing and receiving of God's word. And now in the living of it out, go forth to do so day by day in his peace. Amen.